This conference is all about bringing together that powerful triumvirate, people, capital, and ideas. In 2015, the Paris Climate Accords set the target of limiting global warming to well below two degrees. To reduce the disastrous effects of climate change, we need a whole economy approach. Business, government, and finance working together, taking swift action to reduce emissions, supporting and championing the innovators in cleantech, promoting leadership that sees decarbonization as an opportunity, an opportunity for innovation, an opportunity for global collaboration, an opportunity to build a better world for the future generation. The people here today, the people driving this change. Welcome to Innovation Zero. We're back up again. Fantastic. Well, look, um, thank you very much for, for coming along. We've got an absolute belter of a session to you, some amazing speakers. And this really is an absolutely mission critical area of the uh, of the energy transition about finance and one of those areas where we have to innovate across the system and that includes finance too and we all know as the clean energy revolution gains momentum projects are being proposed both at grid level and in a localized distributed energy scenarios whilst off takers look to play their own part in securing low carbon supplies through ppas and novel ownership and supply models at each level innovation finance options and partnerships are needed to really accelerate the pace of the transition and mark the energy sector out as an attractive place for inward investment. So I'm delighted to be able to introduce Chris Devere Walker, Head of Power and Utilities at the Carbon Tracker Initiative as the moderator of our next session. Chris, over to you. Thank you. I will sit down in just a tick, but I need to introduce properly. So um, everyone can hear loud and clear, I hope. Very, very good. Nods in the back. Nods in the back. Excellent. So money. This is about money and this is about the sector. And if the last decade has been about pointing at a problem in the energy sector in terms of transition, the next decade has got to be about how to change the sector and how money does that. How does money cultivate this sector? It kind of reminds me of a story I once heard about a farmer in Kansas who said, you know, who, who uh, inherited a piece of land. It was a messy, rubbly, dry, inhospitable piece of land. And so what he then did is he got to work with that land. He got rid of the rocks, he moved away the bush, he irrigated it, he, he, he nurtured that land. And that land, he then planted his crops. And one day in church, he told his, uh, he told his uh, preacher of the great work that he'd done on the land. And he invited him to come and see the work that he had done. And the preacher came and he, he looked at the, the, the crops. He said, those pumpkins are the best and most beautiful pumpkins I have seen. The Lord has been good to you. And he looked at other crops. Those are the best tomatoes that I have ever seen. My, the Lord has been good to you. And look at the rest of those crops, the corn, I have never seen something so special. God has been good to you. And at this stage, the farmer was getting a bit fidgety. And he said, you know what, preacher? You should have seen what this land looked like when the Lord was on his own. And I want to say to you this. I have three great farmers, metaphorically speaking, that I would like to introduce you to who are going to be, who are instrumental in our energy transition. 
and we're going to get some insight to what that transition is going to look like when money is used at its best. But we have problems, and this session is about also looking at what those problems are. So to, uh, I'm going to go in order. Pratima Rangarajan, thank you, <laughs> who's the CEO of OGCI Climate Investments. She will be our, she's our first speaker. James Sprintz, Vice President of Energy Impact Partners, who's on the other side there. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we're all at the same level, which means that if you want to see them, what I'm going to introduce is every time you speak, just stand up and sit down. <laughs> and then we have Ben Guest in the middle, who is the uh, Managing Director of Grisham uh, House New Energy and Fund Manager, uh, Grisham House Energy Storage Fund PLC, which I think is the largest. There you go. So we've got some really great names. So without further ado, I'm now going to sit down and get out of your face, and I'm going to start asking some questions here. So I think we could almost ask each panelist the same question to get a kind of nuanced answer from their perspective. But there are, I do have an iPad, so, uh, which is going to throw in questions. So if you do have questions, I will see them, and I will also put this to our panelists. So Pratima, to start with, where is the biggest funding gap for climate technologies as you see it? Uh, okay, yes, you can't hear me. I will ask the Lord first, but apparently the Lord does say that actually today, if you look at today, if I had to answer this question a few years ago versus today, first thing I'll say is there is plenty of money. The Lord has been good to us, right? The capital raised in the last couple of years has been tremendous. Right. Last year, we had a 69% increase in venture capital allocation to climate technology. Right. Over one trillion was allocated to, um, to energy transition. And since then, we've raised a whole bunch more money. Right. So we've raised money both in private markets as well as in corporate investments in energy transition and climate tech. And in addition, Policies like the United States IRA have come on board, which are extremely rich. So capital is not the problem, but where, but you got right to the question, which is how we allocate the capital is extremely important. So if we look at our last 10 years and we look at capital allocation, at least in private markets, I'd say that 80% has been towards electric vehicles and the grid and not the grid itself, but um, electricity generation and storage, right? Yet that's not where the carbon is. That those two account for about thirty percent of the problem: transportation and and power generation. So the rest of the seventy percent need allocation. So that is a balancing act that we need to really do with this next generation of capital. The second area where the allocations have been imbalanced is geographically. When we look at not just where the emissions are today, two out of three of the top emitters are in the globe, what we call the, are Asian, right? Um, and you look at that geographic split, and more importantly, the increase in emissions in the global south is going to outpace the north, and yet they get a minuscule fraction of the capital is allocated over there. So I think those two major issues need to be solved for us to see global impact. Thank you very much. Ben. Um, interestingly, my, my general thought was very similar. We haven't met before. So um, the, the thought that I really had was 
It's not about the amount of capital that's available, although we're clearly in a cycle. So we're going to see less capital in the next couple of years than we've seen in the last few years. But it is about allocation. And rather than talking about the global picture and in terms of which economies can source the most capital and versus where the biggest problems are, my biggest concerns in, from a misallocation perspective are inconsistency of policy. Uh, it's so clear that we all want an energy transition. It's so clear that what achieves that is creating renewable electricity generation and the electrification of all energy consumption. But my concern is, is that in getting to that goal, I think you do it best through also doing that in the most cost-effective way. And the inconsistencies come in when you get a lot of focus away from what are now the cheapest technologies, solar and wind. And it's quite boring to talk about because they're there, they're ramping up and they're there. Um, and you start getting focus on um, and, and disproportionate focus, in my opinion, and, and I'm speaking as, a, as an investor in energy storage, which obviously deals with the intermittency of solar and wind, is a lot of focus, especially in this country, on things like nuclear, on carbon capture, on potentially hydrogen, um, areas that I feel less clear about as to why we need them in significant quantities if the cheapest, most cost-effective solution that is achievable and robust and subject to debate is solar, wind, and whatever we do with flexibility. Um, so yeah, very much allocation of capital is the biggest issue, but we are in a cycle. Cost of capital is going up, and we're going to see valuations come down. But that's healthy. That's healthy as well. Thank you, Ben. James, where do you see the biggest funding gap? Yeah, I agree, agree with a lot of what's been said so far. Um, but what I would, the biggest change I've seen over the last 10 years is what it's like to raise capital as an early stage company developing very, very difficult technology. You know, five years ago, there is no one who wanted to invest in breakthrough technologies for the climate space. Um, so that has completely transformed. And I think that's no longer a gap. That was a big gap a number of years ago. Oddly, where the gap now is, is I think at companies at a later stage. So if you're someone who's saying, I'm going to solve this big problem in climate that everyone recognizes is here in five to 10 years, I'm currently just in a lab, give me millions of pounds to do that. There are plenty of investors today who will fund that. If you've then spent five years developing that technology and you now want to deploy your first project to show that that technology works in the real world, there is no one who wants to fund that. And I think that is where we see the biggest gap. You know, I, I work for a venture capital and growth equity firm. So we're investing at that earlier stage. We're backing a lot of those technology companies, but we're not project investors and we're not set up to be the ones providing that capital to kind of commercialize uh, projects in the first stage. And partly that gap is to do with the market. I think there is a lot of excitement about technology, you know, areas, things like hydrogen, long duration storage, where maybe, you know, there's different views on it. You might have a view that it's needed in the market in five to 10 years. It's needed today. And so that's part of the reason those companies are struggling to, to raise money. But I also think it is actually a gap that investors need to solve. And we need to find a way to bridge the venture world and the infrastructure world so that that, that gap for kind of basically next generation of infrastructure that is being invented and developed actually has, yeah, that next generation of infrastructure can actually be financed before it becomes mature and, and an understandable risk and asset class that um, bigger scale infrastructure investors want to take on. Thank you. And there's a couple of points there that I'd like to drill down on. Uh, I guess what happens after your part role is played as a, as a kicking this 
technology off with the much needed oxygen it needs. But before we tackle that question, I guess a question from me is, is that, is grid sexy enough? Why have we missed grid from an investment point of view? You know, uh, I'll, I'll put it to you like this. Um, over there somewhere, uh, this guy here, Lorenzo Sani, part of my team, um, is writing a really exciting paper called Gone with the Wind. Now, um, it's, going to, it's all about the congestion issue in the UK. We're not talking about a country in the Middle East or a country in Central Asia. Great Britain here, we, can't, we, are, we are costing ourselves because we haven't invested adequately in the grid. And the question I would have to you here, where is that investment in the grid? It, why is it delayed? Is it, do you have a, pos a position on that? Uh, I think it's uh, an issue across the Atlantic as well. It's not just the United Kingdom. You sit in the U.S. and this is a huge part of the issue, right? As that's, I, I come from renewables, right? Before I took this job six years ago, I worked on wind and battery storage. So I think you have to acknowledge that wind and solar today with the type of storage we have, they have a low capacity factor. So in order to bring them on, you have to raise the capacity as well as the capability of your grid. And why is it slow? Typically, it's allocated to different entities and the government has to get engaged. And when the government has to get engaged and there is uh, regulatory oversight and permits have to be issued, it's actually extremely slow. So I'd say that the action has to meet the talk from the government's perspective. And that's just, you know, it, it just, we have to be direct about it. And we're waiting across in infrastructure generally, governments have to invest in infrastructure or they have to allow investors to move forward by providing the permitting and other mm -hmm. regulatory mechanisms that allow us to put capital to work. So it's not that the grid isn't sexy, it is that we have to all agree and get moving uh, doing it. I think the previous speakers, the panel was very eloquent about this. Uh, and so these are just, it's great to have EVs, but if you don't have charging networks, it's hard to take your EV anyplace. It's the same here. It's great to have wind and storage, but if you don't have a way to get mm -hmm. the electricity to someone, you're going to be kind of stuck. Yes, indeed. Ben, do you? I've got very strong views on grid. Hopefully you can hear me. Um, in fact, the, the, the ticker for the investment trust I run is actually grid. Um, so uh, the interesting thing is all generation now is decentralized. Um, historically, we've had a centralized grid um, with everything built in the middle of the country or middle, middle of regions with lots of fuel put under it, whether it's coal or gas. And, and, and you built the grid around that. And it, sort of, it was a bit like water running down a mountain to you know, the people living in the foothills. So it was, it was very, very simple and centralized. Now everything is decentralized. And what, one of the big things, and you do have this in the States, you don't have this in, in the UK, but you're going to have it everywhere in due course, is um, a local price signal. So at the moment, yeah. we're, we're building things as though it costs the same to get the power to the final consumer wherever you build it. While in reality, if you price things correctly, whatever that means, we, we might not be building quite so much offshore wind off the north coast of Scotland. We might be building it off the coast of East Anglia much more or elsewhere. Even if the wind resource is less, when you account for the distance it's got to travel and the billions you've got to spend, you might end up with very different investment decisions. So we're victims of a non-localized marginal pricing system, which is going to take at least another eight to 10 years to implement, and that would be National Grid telling you that. It wouldn't be me. Um, so so that's, that's, that's really the problem. And it's, they're monopolies as well. So they, it is government-led. It's, it's, it's government 
it's government stroke regular to stroke national grid entity led. So there's very little room for VCs and private capital to get involved in that area. Mm. That's, that's my view. So do you want to? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say what, what you just described, Ben, is imagine when we used to only watch television or go to movies, right? Broadcast. I, yeah. And you think about the transition we had in the media world, right? Now you just, you're, you know, exchanging YouTube videos. People are doing stuff on TikTok. So we took it out of the government's hands and it has become, as Ben says, distributed. Everyone has capability to deal with it. And that is in some other countries, it is available, right? In the US, in in Texas, I could pick where I wanted to get my electricity from, but here where it's not, it then becomes a slower innovative cycle. Interesting. Right? Good point. James. I mean, I would really just emphasize the last point Ben made, which is that it is the most regulated part of the power sector. Yeah. And there is very limited opportunity to invest in it for most investors. So, you know, I think a lot of work needs to be done on the regulatory sides to address how the, the regulator monopolies run that system and make it easier to implement new technology. But fundamentally, I don't ever think the grid is going to be an asset class or an area where most investors are excited about because that it is run by monopoly businesses for a reason. And it's just not where you know, funds and investors are going to be spending their time allocating capital. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm going to do another unashamable plug because we have over there um, Jonathan Sims, who's written a paper, and I've got no more colleagues, so I can't do any more plugs after that, but uh, he's written a paper essentially on the, on the regulated asset base and the, what could be done to, to, to bring forward investment to plug the, the actual physical gap. And, you know, RAB, regulated asset base incentive tariff, has evolved, but it, it clearly is clearly missing and it's clearly behind and it's not obviously responsive enough to, to the grid. I'm going to move on to uh, my next question here. And the, the question is, is, what role should venture capital play in supporting the energy and climate transition? Quite a high-level question. You could almost take that in any direction just from where we are, but see if you can make it interesting. Fatima. <laughs> okay. So I think first I'll say there's, there's two parts to this question, and I'll expand your question a little bit. Thank you. Uh, I think if we look at energy transition today, and I disagree with my friend Ben here, we're gonna need CCUS and everything else. Even if we decarbonize the electricity system, you will, we will have 50% of the climate problem still. So those are the chocolate chips. I'm gonna talk about the whole cookie here. And uh, the, I think 50% of the technologies we need to achieve our transition or achieve climate goals are available today. And this is where, James, I totally agree with you. We need the capital allocated for those technologies to be scaled, implemented globally, right? And then there's the other 50% where we don't have technologies today that are either as effective or cost-effective as they need to be. And that's where venture capital absolutely comes in, right? And so we need to address the venture capital on all sectors and industries that need to be decarbonized. Using words like hard to abate are not helpful. They are typically the undercapitalized sectors we didn't even try. So let's try not to call them hard to obey. Let's give it a try and we'll probably find that human ingenuity will figure out a way to make it happen. So I think venture capital has a really important role, but follow-on capital that James talks about, I think is a very, very critical already and today. Yeah, I mean, 
as Pratima was saying, that there's nothing better than venture capital at commercializing technology and finding the most profitable way to deploy it. And when you look across all of the sectors and industries verticals that we need to decarbonize, obviously the technology is at various stages of maturity. And I think often when people talk about solutions, they get fixated on technology as if developing the technology is the bottleneck. And often that is. Um, but often actually finding the best business model to bring that technology to market is either a bigger bottleneck or the bottleneck where that market currently stands. And venture capital is really the, the means to finding the best way to do that. And if you take an example like decarbonizing heat in the home, you know, you can argue about is there the right level of government support and are there the right government policies? Fundamentally, we have a lot of technologies available to decarbonize heating in homes but no one's really come up with a great business model for getting heat pumps into millions of homes, to take one example. Um, there are a lot of early stage companies looking at doing that and a lot of venture capital funds who are backing them. Most of them are gonna fail. Some of them will have the right model um, and hopefully some of them will replicate the success of say the rooftop solar market where we've seen that deployment model work very effectively. And I think it is VC funds who are, and then later, you know, beyond that growth equity who are set up to take that kind of risk and a comfortable, taking a combination of some technology risk, a lot of business model risk, and finding the right solution for the market. But ultimately, venture capital is a very, very small part of the overall funding pie. So once those business models are found and we feel confident in the way technologies are coming to market, it's then for you know, much bigger pools of capital to come in and, and bring real scale to that. Ben. Speaking as a non-venture capitalist today, um, I'll sort of bring a, a different perspective, but it's, 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 I think it's really important. I mean, you mentioned heat pumps, um, another one that comes to mind is efficiency. There's so many technologies which are sort of kind of cumbersome to implement because they're either bespoke at each home level or installation level and so on. And there's no very quick rollout because you're not doing it in a greenfield way and so on. So retrofitting stuff is difficult. And I think that's where policy really comes in. And there's a lack of interest in, in my opinion, from what I've seen over many years, and I've been in the industry for over 15 years now, is, is interest in really supporting in, uh, technologies which really have a very already a fairly short payback. So there should be more incentives in um, areas like heat pumps, in efficiency, and just get the job done. And then we'd actually really unlock a lot of savings around heat, around other things. And I agree that there are other areas. I'm very focused on the electricity and energy transition. I know there are lots of other areas. So they become, I guess, hard to abate, or whatever the right word is, or sort of misnomer is, because, because, they, because they're not getting the traction. But it doesn't mean they're that hard. It's just, it's just we need that little unlocking of the missing money or the missing savings or the incentive to, to get them done. Um, so I think that's where government can play a big role. I think government is playing an interesting role in all sorts of areas, um, like the UK Investment Bank is, is making investments in terms of unlocking missing capital and infrastructure as well as earlier stage. So are Bayes, uh, now called um, DESNES or Department for Energy Security and Net Zero. And I think there's a really important sort of track, sort of a... a the triangle, if you like, of VC um, government and, and also funds like ours who could um, be encouraged, and this does happen already, in, be encouraged through subsidy um, and, of course, through the businesses themselves actually creating the opportunities to invest in trial projects. So half battle is, is not just the product and the business model, but obviously the customer. Is there a customer for the, for the solution? Uh, and I think that's, that's really the thing that needs to be focused on. And each, in each area, the triangle looks brighter in one corner or other depending on what we might be talking about. So, but I do think that that's sort of the, the picture that you've got to try and make work to get the stars to align in. It's interesting here because what we're saying is to start these technologies, 
isn't always the problem. It's to give them the momentum yeah. to the point that they are actually in the market surviving on their own. And getting down that cost curve. Yeah. So important. And, and there are several examples where you've got lithium-ion batteries are a great example where you know they got going thanks to consumer electronics. The industry was savvy enough to see the lead and opportunity in larger format batteries for EVs and stole the march and then ran down the cost curve through automation, larger form factors, etc. When there are lots of other technologies that if they'd been given a chance uh, and set off at the same time, uh, might have become the, the leading technology, at least in some areas. Um, so there are many examples of that. Yeah, absolutely. And look, this is also a geopolitical issue, right? If I look back at LCD TVs, those of you old as me will remember the wars, the LCD TV wars. It was won by the Far East, right? All the scale-up went through Korea and China, right? You come down to ba batteries, right, in energy storage. At the time, Elon Musk said, I'm going to build a gigafactory. Seven gigafactories already existed in China. So as we think about these innovation cycles in the West, we are uh, obsessed with new ideas, with shiny objects, and bringing these brilliant new ideas to market. But we don't have the patience to scale them up. So if we follow what was done before, one of the reasons that a lot of the new solar technologies never took off is because China came in and used their supply chain advantage. Yeah. They put manufacturing in place for the original solar technology, and they washed the market with cheap solar, right? I mean, these lessons are very, very not that far away in our history. So the importance of scaling that James brought up and Ben just talked about is critical, not just from a sense of achieving the objectives, but achieving a competitive spot for the countries we're talking about here, right? So, I mean, there's, there's a couple of things in there if we try to unpack that. One thing is, is that if a market scales up, it doesn't necessarily mean it's scaling up the, the right part of, you know, the right technology. And the second thing is, do we really, do we really then need to have a, our parochial market actually pick, pick a winner and, and sponsor it or subsidize it? Are we suggesting that? Not really. I rarely ask the government to pick out my technology outcomes. But I do think setting the objectives, what do you want to achieve outcomes? Governments for efficiency is an excellent example. In, um, when Ernie Muniz was the Secretary of Energy in the United States, which I think was Obama administration, he set out targets for efficiency from the U.S. Department of Energy. It was fabulous. Private industry came in and we delivered, right? Because the innovators could, venture capitalists could come up with innovations and companies were scaling them and delivering them as automotive, automobiles or whatever it is. So setting those targets in place. And then right now, some of the subsidies like in the IRA are really valuable for scaling because they've, mm -hmm. they've identified in the US those gaps in market. The UK needs to do that. EU, we need to do that. Because if not, then naturally your supply chain will go to another region. Right. And once your supply chain goes to another region, then you're dependent on what you can get from there. Yeah. Right? The, the, the UK has picked its winners, though. I mean, with Rolls-Royce, we're trying to develop small modular reactors with the offshore wind. 
resource that we've got. We're trying to be leaders in offshore wind, mm-hmm. um, in carbon capture with a fairly large historical fossil fuel industry. We're, we're doing a lot of CCUS work. Um, and there's some derivatives area within stories that emerge from that. And I think just in general, we've got some great, great area in computing minds and AI, including energy. Yeah. That's another area as well. So I do, I do, I can't help thinking that some countries or countries gravitate towards the areas they're strong in and or not have natural advantages like our offshore wind resource. But uh, I think offshore wind is a great success story, actually. Yeah, amazing. I think it's a fabulous success story. What was it in, in 30 years, the cost is down by 50% or more, more right? More. And so if we use that and try to think about scaling other technologies using the same positive uh, uh, methods we used in that, that would be an amazing outcome. No, I, I mean, I just think today there's no doubt that the climate policy is very much being merged with domestic jobs policy in a way that was not at all the case 15, 20 years ago. I mean, the example Pratima gave of um, solar, particularly the German solar industry, is like the polar opposite. Back then, there was you know, very much a fixation on using free market policies and so therefore we did not support European jobs and manufacturing. Um, and today we're taking completely the opposite approach. We will see in 20 years whether that's had the desired outcome. But I think, you know, again, with offshore wind, the UK has a great offshore wind industry, doesn't have much offshore wind manufacturing. So again, I think that is something we would not, in today's political environment, want to repeat. And everyone in this room is going to have different views on whether or not that's the right approach. But I think we should know we're doing it for the reasons we're doing it. And if those reasons are for domestic jobs, fine. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the fastest way to scale new climate technology. Uh, interesting. Uh, uh, there's always, uh, you know, caution to the wind. Uh, I was w- back in the day when I was working at IHS Market, I did some research on the Australian market. And the, the solar, solar, the leap in solar technology or the, the rooftop solars destabilized the grid. So. Um, and then they had blackouts, and everyone's asking this question, if we have more renewables, how does that work out? So, you know, things have to work in lockstep for sure, and that takes us back to a previous question. But let's uh, change, unless you've got a, a comment on it, no, um, you look like you're going to break into song or, or answer that. I didn't know which. And so let's, let's go to a, a fundamental question. And uh, Tima, you, you actually suggested it in, the, in your opening gambit. What's the availability like for the sources of capital right now? Is there, we've heard actually in another session, there's plenty of cash around. So tell us about that and tell us how that, you know, how that could be pointed in the right places. Yeah, I think um, last year, I mean, over the last year or so, we've had huge raises in capital for climate technology, right? So venture capital, for example, is flush with capital. um, And... I think James, you pointed out there is a small, there is a gap in the growth between venture and the growth stage. There is a gap, and that's why we're pursuing that strategy as well. Recognize the gap, just like uh, 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 James and his team, and we're actually creating new funds to close that gap, and we're raising capital there because we do need these technologies scaled up, and in our portfolio of I don't know, 34 today, Jason, of uh, investments, several of them are ready to scale. And they're telling us that there, there is a gap in the marketplace because the big guys don't know how to deploy innovation capital. So we all need to get in there and close that gap. But having said that, that's not the biggest problem. I'll come back to where I started, which is 
most of the funding, most of the capital is still being allocated to electric mobility and the grid and the power sector, electricity. And that's only 30% of carbon. The rest of the 70% needs to be looked after and needs to be capitalized. And that's where we work. We work in industry. So we do uh, cement and concrete. We do iron and steel, chemicals, and we do do some power gen. But we also do the heavy-duty transportation, shipping, aircraft, trucks, right? It's not all EVs because there's a huge chunk of other growing emissions. Then we work on built environments. So the buildings, this is not a highly energy-efficient place, right? And to your point, energy efficiency of most buildings in London, especially the ones that are under the, you know, the special do-not-change-your-windows provision, really aren't that efficient. And finally, there's this piece around agriculture and, uh, and the natural systems that we've got to put capital towards. And finally, I won't, uh, there is a geographic issue as well. We have to figure out business models to take the capital and drive it into the global south. James, I feel you're on the Yeah, I mean, I, I remember 10 years ago when, you know, when venture capital for clean tech, as it was called then, was drying up and no one wanted to invest in that area it was an obvious way to lose money um and so today i mean it is just a seismic shift that has happened in in the market and 2021 was really this year of you know endless multi-billion dollar fund announcements um you know eip where i work has been around since 2015 and kind of say we were lonely for a long time and now the party's a bit crowded but um I think that can be challenging for investors but ultimately that's fantastic for climate because it means more money is going to be spent um you know, building new technologies and bringing them to market. But I think in addition to, you know, the availability of capital, you know, there's two other, I think, big, big, important it's changes that have happened. Though. One is the size and maturity of the funds that are in this space, because they're not just earlier stage technology investors. These are big private equity firms. And that is, you know, fantastic because it means there is room for companies that mature um, to find an exit, to find a home and have a partner as they go on and become you know really long lasting businesses the other thing is that for a very long time i think investors believe they could solve climate change with software and you know mm -hmm. don't get me wrong software has an important role to play we've got some fantastic software companies in our portfolio but in energy agriculture industry etc these are infrastructure there's moving parts there's hardware there's equipment and you have to be able to invest behind those um, in order to actually address climate change. And we've been investing in hardware businesses for a while alongside the software companies we invest in. And I think that's another really big change. And that goes hand in hand with the amount of capital that's now available, because often those types of physical solutions are the ones that require enormous amounts of um, money, money to scale. And so that has been really important to see that shift in mentality. I've just got one, one, one minor comment, which is the, the, the sometimes when, when, when you've got um, an industry which is growing really fast with loads of capital being thrown at it, valuations go crazy, and natural off-takers and long-term funders and partners, you mentioned that expression, um, for these businesses are industry players who are already established. This industry is now maturing, and so there are big established companies that are natural buyers of some of the smaller peripheral businesses. But I feel like one of the gaps is actually on valuation. 
um, in the tech sector, the large caps remained at very high valuations for a long time. So it didn't mind paying crazy numbers for really tiny businesses um, that it could actually probably scale very, very quickly because it was non-capital based. Here you're talking about industry. And so there's, there's probably a digestion phase where we need a little bit of equalization around valuation expectations for deals to be able to happen. And then the next phase of growth within other businesses to take place. Yeah, we're all hoping for that. I'm going to break the rules slightly. Apologies. Um, I want to give a microphone to this gentleman here because I don't see your question here. So if you uh, please don't let me down, ask a reasonable well, this question. Is, you've kind of touched on this a little bit already, but uh, sorry. My name is Steve Tonkin-Forsen. I'm from Alliance. I consult with a lot of startups, some in the climate space. Um, so this is a question that's come from some of my clients, actually. Um, so further to points that both James and Ben have already made, I think uh, lots of new, new low-carbon technologies are very capital intensive. And you particularly see this when you get to series level funding. So at sea level, they develop the prototype, they prove the principle in lab. Now they need to build lots of them. And there's a basic problem here to do with the cost of capital. If you're, if you're going for serious funding, uh, it's going to be 5% you know, cost of capital per year. How do you do that? How do you scale up to the point where you can really get the company off the ground? Because in 10 years' time, it might be infrastructure finance at you know, a few percent. But at that point, you need a lot of money, and it's going to be very expensive, even more this year. So how would we go about doing that? Thank you for your question. Who wants to... I... I'm surprised by how much appetite I do see for that type of investment. I would have to say, I mean, over the last year, I've probably looked at 20 different opportunities that were building up manufa battery manufacturing plants in Europe. We didn't end up doing them, but I mean, all of those, almost all of those companies got funded. And some of these are, you know, they don't even have a customer. So it's to, to me, I, I'm actually almost surprised the other way. I'd say five years ago, I think your, complete, your question was 100% spot on. None of those companies could get funded. Today, there is so much appetite to support climate and deploy capital into this space that really, I, th I think um, those businesses can. L longer term, I do think there is a challenge because I do worry about how many of those investments are, are going to work out. And I do think we need to find the right model to bring um, these companies you know, to, to scale with manufacturing. And I, and I don't think kind of early stage equity investors are the right partners for that type of investment. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, in the last five years, $3 billion, $5 billion, $7 billion fundraises means people have to write big checks. So now's the time before it dries up. So that's my two cents. But the second thing, what we do in our company is something slightly different. We partner with big corporations. So not only do we invest capital in a startup, we will do pilots. We have 100 pilots already with our 32 companies, right? We will do pilots at these big corporations. We will do demonstrations. And then we actually go out and knock on doors and open doors for them to really get clients and get commercial. I do think for climate Tech, we're going to need to do the same thing. It's no different from wind. When I first started wind, old age is showing, but it took us 30 years to get from three kilowatts to three megawatts of a wind turbine. And we wouldn't have even done that if all you had was wind turbine manufacturers and utilities. The development, all these nimble development companies in between were needed to stitch that gap. We're still going to need it, and that's what we do. And, and I would say one more thing, which is that I've seen 
across the fund management industry, not just VC taking off that mantle, government supporting, but also infrastructure funds um, becoming a little bit more private equity-like and not being core infrastructure, which is the lowest and safest return, but actually core plus or what they now value add and investing in really not very infrastructure-like or private equity-like kind of, sorry, traditional infrastructure-like. It's much more private equity. It's, and so private equity is moving into that infrastructure and in private equity are sort of merging in some, at some levels I, and providing a lot of the missing capital. I agree. I think the, uh, there's still a gap in debt. De- oh, the yeah, debt financing, yeah. when there is risk, that piece is still a gap. And I have no ideas. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> right. Um, I have a couple of questions here. But before I go on, um, Anonymous, which is uh, a very common name in this uh, iPad, uh, is looking for a job. If, if, if you're going to stay as Anonymous, um, you're not going to get a job. You need a name. Um, and uh, anyway, anonymous, make yourself less anonymous and maybe there is a job. So going to the, to the, the and that really wasn't a question, to be honest. It's right here in the iPad. Um, the, the next uh, question I, I think is a pretty interesting question, as I've spent a lot of time in markets that have strong local content laws, is how important is local content policy in your, in your line of work? I mean, it's becoming increasingly important. I think it's something that we would probably rather spend less time thinking about because ultimately we're trying to back companies of, of global scale and global potential. But I think it's something that every investor has to be very, very aware of because as we were kind of talking about 10 minutes ago, the direction of travel in everything to do with climate policy is completely merging of domestic jobs policy. And so, you know, I think more and more companies, it, it very much depends on the type of company we're looking at, but I think, you know, more software type businesses is, is not so relevant. But anything that, you know, has a local base is around deploying stuff, is about building stuff. We have to be more and more aware of that as we're thinking about the business. But, it, you know, in all honesty, it's something we'd, we'd rather not be a major concern because we'd like to see the best solutions win out where possible. But, I, I, yeah. you know, it's just a set of rules, right? You just, it's part of what we do. If there's local content rules and we can use it to our advantage to position a company and get them started, hey, great. If it keeps you out of the market, then it's bad for the local community. Yeah. Right? It's, it's the way it's set up that's more important than anything else. I, I think it's a big topic. Yeah. Um, as, as an asset owner, knowing that if a geopolitical event takes place, you can guess which ones I'm thinking about, um, my supply chain will be very, very severely disrupted. And the extension of the Chinese lockdown policies really affected that globally for everyone. And the extensions of that, whatever shape they take, really will have very significant consequences. So everyone wants an energy transition. Everyone wants low cost. But I think supply chain and geopolitics or whatever you want to call it, local content as the reverse aspect of that, is absolutely right up there on the risk register today. So I think, I think the final buyers of technology would be really welcoming of local content-focused VC businesses. That would be my perspective. I think Ben's got a point that it's actually, I take it to a higher level and take your point globally, as it's a supply chain issue. And if we're not smart about supply chains, then you either have a security or supply issue or you have a cost issue. So, and supply chains like grids do better when they have a network. So it's not an isolated island with its own grid, but say connected to other islands with grids. You won't guess what I'm talking about, of course. <laughs> but in the same set way, supply chains are too local, relative, become expensive. But you do need a supply chain that you can rely on uh, under geopolitical stress. 
Very good. Listen, I, I, would, I could go on like a German opera for four days, but I think our session has come to an end. Is it over our session? I think it is. Yeah. Um, I want to thank our extraordinary panelists, uh, James, Ben, uh, Pratima. Thank you very much indeed. It's, um, it's been an honor to have you, and I hope to see you again here. To register your interest in attending, exhibiting, sponsoring, or speaking at Innovation Zero 2024, please go to www.innovationzero.com. We look forward to meeting you at Olympia in London on the 30th of April and the 1st of May 2024.